Well, uh, further to motivate you to pray earnestly with me, I'll tell you this has been a very challenging passage. I, I literally studied from before sunrise to after sunset days on this, and so there's a lot to say about it, but I promise to try to have you out before the evening services start. <laughs> promise to try. See, that way, every, any earlier I stop is gravy. So, let's pray earnestly together. We come to a passage, our God, that reminds us how much you love your Son, how you would honor Him, and what a glorious banquet we're being called to when we're called to know Him, and how you call all men to this banquet to help us to honor the Lord Jesus Christ by hearing and heeding to your glory and to our own good. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is called the parable of the wedding feast. It is one of the three parables that Jesus told in response to the Pharisees and chief priests who'd come to uh, challenge him, or I should say the elders and chief priests who'd come to challenge him as to his authority. And uh, the last parable we studied was in all three synoptics. This parable is only in Matthew's gospel. And in these um, parables, we see a progression. The first parable about the two sons really focused, as we saw, on their response to John the Baptist. The two sons, the one who said, when the father said, go work in the vineyard, the first said, um, I don't really feel like it, and then re regretted that and went. And the second said, sure, you bet, I'm your guy, and never went. And Jesus said that the first was like the prostitutes and the tax collectors who will go into the kingdom of God ahead of the religious leaders who pledge great piety but never come when called to the kingdom. And then was the parable of the tenants. And the focus of that, so the focus on the first was response to John the Baptist. The focus of the parable of the tenants surely was their murder of the landowner's son. And he sent various servants who they mistreated and killed. And he sent his son, that was the climax, and the men seeing him murdered him. And so that led Jesus to warn of the destruction of Jerusalem as God's judgment and to tell them that they forfeited their right to the kingdom of God. It would be given to a nation that would produce the fruit of it. And Jesus also said that as a consequence of and despite their rejection of him, God would exalt him as the chief cornerstone and the one on whom if people fell, they'd be destroyed. If he fell on them, they'd be crushed to dust. So now, so focus on John the Baptist, focus on the murder of Christ. Now this third parable really sweepingly takes in the whole kingdom program from the Old Testament to this very day. So we'll see that together as we take this apart. Now let us begin then, Roman numeral one, by understanding the events of the parable. So as I've, I've done on sometimes past, I'll expound the parable and then I'll extract and focus on some lessons to apply from the parable, focus on. So first, the events of the parable. And we have the introduction in verses 1 and 2. In verse 1, we read, And Jesus in answer again said to them in parables, saying, you say, well, answering what? That phrase is used in Greek, not necessarily to mean that there's been a question, but 
Either it simply means a person kept speaking or that he's speaking in response. I think probably that's the case here because he's continuing to respond to their challenge of his authority, their response of rejection to what he was doing, who he was, what he was saying. So he continues, but notice also that he says, Jesus in answer again said to them in parables. So what does that tell us? He's still speaking to who? the chief priests and the elders, as well as the Pharisees who were there. He's still speaking to the leaders, as we saw in chapter 1, uh, chapter 21, verse 23. The chief leaders and uh, the chief priests and the leaders, the elders came to him. And then again in 2145, the chief priests and the Pharisees knew he was speaking concerning them. So he's still speaking to them. That's important to understand this parable. Verse 2, the kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man, a king, such as made wedding festivities for his son. Now, the kingdom of the heavens has been the theme throughout, and we, sh- we do well to remind ourselves of the shift in the Gospel of Matthew that happened around chapter 12 and 13. In chapter 12, remember, they'd committed the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, saying that Jesus did what he did by the power of Satan. And Jesus basically said, that's, that's it. There's no going back from that. And your house is going to be left to you desolate, like a, like a, a man who's had one demon leave him, and then he comes back with seven demons worse than he. That's what this generation is like, Jesus said. And then in chapter 13, the center of the gospel structurally, he gave the mysteries, the mystery, the parables of the mysteries of the kingdom of God, which spoke of this new phase in God's program where the preaching of the kingdom was like seed scattered on four different kinds of soil. It was like leaven putting in a lump of dough. And I, I won't go back and re-preach that, but that, that speaks to our age and what is happening in our age when the announcement is no longer the kingdom of heaven, the heavens is at hand in the physical presence of Jesus, but people are being called to join the kingdom and become members, citizens of the kingdom by repentance and faith. So that's, in the, that's what he's talking about here. And you notice in this parable, this king, he's the central character and he's the, the speaker and the son is his focus. So the, the parable's focus is the king and the son is the king's focus. The king speaks again and again. The king acts again and again in this parable. And these wedding festivities that he's going to make for his son uh, they would last a week. It was, it was a big deal in that day. And not the parents of the bride, but the, the parent of the, of the groom would uh, fund and create these, uh, these festivities. So it was a big deal. Now, uh, there's no bride mentioned, and that's, that's not what the parable is about. The parable is all about the king throwing this banquet for his son and calling people to it and how they responded. So remember, parables don't do everything. They usually have one or two main focuses. That's the focus of this parable, the invitation uh, to come to the banquet. And now the banquet, I tell you before we move on, the banquet is in a number of places, it's a picture of the messianic kingdom. It is often portrayed as a banquet. One verse, Isaiah 25, 6. Whole chapter is great. I commend it to you. But let me read you Isaiah 25, 6. And Yahweh of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet for all peoples on this mountain. A banquet of aged wine, choice pieces with marrow and refined aged wine. So Jesus echoed the same uh, more than once. Matthew 8, 11. Matthew 8, 11, he said, And I say to you, many will come from east and west and recline at table 
with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. So this is the picture of the kingdom as a banquet, a, a lavish, rich, joyous banquet. So with this introduction now, he tells the parables in two sequences that mirror each other. And again, this is going to be very helpful in understanding a very difficult point of interpretation and very important point of interpretation in this parable. There's two sequences and they mirror each other. In each sequence, the king acts, there's a response. The king reacts, there's a response, and the king reacts again. That's the first seven verses. And again, in verses 8 through 13, the king acts, there's a response. The king reacts, there's a response, and the king reacts. So they mirror each other. And like I said, that's going to help us a lot, noticing that. So here is the first sequence, three calls and responses. Now, if you've studied it up before this, you may say, you know, you've confessed in the past, Pastor, that math is not your strongest thing. And I think you've miscounted. There aren't three calls here. There are two calls in this section. Well, let's see. <laughs> so here's, here's the king's action, first of all. It is a call to the called in verse 3a. It is a call to the called. And he sent his slaves to call those who had been called unto the wedding festivities. Now, do you start to see how many calls are in this verse? There are actually two calls in this verse. They are sent to call who? those who had been called. So no, that's actually important. It's, it is quite important, as I'll show you in just a second. There had been a call that precedes this parable. This parable starts with a call sent out to people who had already been called. So let's start first then with the call that precedes the parable, those who had been called. Now this is very standard in that day because preparing these feasts took time it was hard to be exact about when they'd be ready. And remember, nobody had a watch and nobody had text or email. So the first call was, it was an invitation that said, I'm going to prepare a wedding banquet. Will you come? And so all these people had presumably said, yes, I'll come. But then later a messenger would come out, it would come out and say, come now. But this was just a notice that there was going to be a banquet. It was an invitation to come to that banquet. Now, you have translations who different, do different things. And I, my translation is always often painfully literal. And you'll see call, call, call. Your translation may say invite, invitation, call. You know, invite, 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 many are called. But the truth is the word call occurs again and again in this parable. Hence the title of the sermon. Called and called and called and called. So, uh, they had been called already before, before the messengers were sent out at this time. Please be ready to come when called. And so what is that speaking to in the setting of the parable? The whole sweep of the Old Testament. From Genesis 3.15 to Malachi, the way our canon is set up. All the calls from the very start in the garden and the first sin when God said he would, sent a, he would send a seed that would crush the head of the serpent. Sin would not be final. The serpent's victory would not be ultimate. God would send a conqueror, a human conqueror, to conquer the, ser the servant. And then from then on, there are calls, and calls again and again in many, way many ways, paving the road to the Messiah, telling them to expect God's coming kingdom and God's coming key, the, the king, the uh, lion from the tribe of, of 
Judah, uh, the star that would come from Judah, and the son of David, uh, this mighty uh, God, this wonderful counselor, this virgin-born king who would come. All this preparation in the Old Testament telling them God would send his king and God would bring his kingdom and his king would make a full atonement for sin and they would need to repent and trust him. All of this Old Testament, that is the first invitation, saying there's going to be a banquet. Be ready. Be ready. When the call goes out, be ready to come. Well, all they had been told to be ready, and now comes the sending out of these messengers. He sent his slaves out to call those who had been called, saying, now the time has come. Come, he's saying. And he being a king, he would expect them to respond promptly. They're his subjects. He's their king. This is the word of the king. So what does this correspond to in history, in the backdrop of the gospel? Well, who came on the scene after four centuries of silence and said, repent for what? The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Repent. The kingdom of the heavens is at hand. Who who was that first? John the Baptist. And then who preached that as his first sermon in the Gospel of Matthew? the Lord Jesus, and who in chapter 10 were sent out to the lost sheep of the tribe of Israel only to preach the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, the 12 apostles. And so again and again, there was this this ministry saying, come to the banquet, basically repent and come. Here's the king. And the king is showing and showing his fitness to be the king and the fact that he is that only king. This is their ministry. So those are the two invitations. And we have the response then in verse 3b, and that response is willful rejection. And yet they were not wishing to come. They did not will to come. They were unwilling, not wishing to come. They had said they would as the Jews had pledged themselves to be the people of God. And Shema Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Echad, they confessed again and again. Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one, they confessed. Vahavteth Yahweh Eloheka, and you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now they're called to come to his son, the king, and they just didn't want to. They were just unwilling to come. You say, well, uh, what about free will? And I say, well, there is free will right, right there. That is free will. That's the will of every sinner, every human being, apart from a miraculous work of the Spirit of God. Not willing to come. So they very freely willed to reject the call of the gospel, as everyone will, apart from a work of God. Because the will is just the heart making choices. And their heart was turned against God and hardened. So they didn't wish to. But now, again, What's happening here, though? This is a king sending out his slaves, telling his subjects to come. So this isn't just a, and then that happened, or, oh, that was unfortunate sort of thing. For subjects to refuse the call of their king is borderline rebellion. It's shameful. It's disgraceful. It's a shocking act. So here's another parable with shocking developments in it. It is shocking for them to say... And just say as bluntly as, as the, the second son did in the first parable, I just don't, uh, pardon me, the first son in the first parable, I just don't want to. I'm just not willing to do it. <laughs> I'm not saying I can't. I'm not saying it even that it's hard. I just don't want to. And that's their response. Just don't want to come. 
Here's the Lord Jesus, God's Son incarnate, walking in and out among them. And they're just not interested in having Him as their, their Lord, their Savior, their God, their King. So, this is the, the first response, and this brings the king's reaction. Number three, what is the king's reaction? Well, the king's reaction is the third call, and that's shocking. Again, he sent other slaves, saying, Say to those who've been called, Look, my meal I've readied, my bulls and fattened cattle slaughtered, and all things ready. Come to the wedding festivities. Well, that's shocking. This king has been insulted and shamed. And that was a shame-based culture. culture. And that was a, uh, an outrageous thing for them to shame him like this. And what's his response? To call again. To call again. And to plead with them. And to lay out. Not, not, not even to say as he perfectly well could have, well, you have to. I'm your king. You're my subjects. You have to. I'll punish you if you don't. All this is true, but, but he lays out what a lavish feast it is. What a wondrous feast it is. Well, he wants to honor his son. And he wants a lot of people there to honor his son. So my meal I've readied. The word for meal is really breakfast. It's an early day meal. Uh, and these, uh, these slaughtered, butchered cattle is for a, a later meal. So it's, it's just nothing but luxury from start to finish. It's extraordinarily patient of him beyond all reality. All the hearers at this point would be going, well, that would never happen. <laughs> at this point, that would never happen. No king would call again after being as shamed as he was by this first response. And yet this king, with exceptional patience, beyond all expectation, calls again. So what's the meaning here in the, in the history of redemption? Well, we've already talked about John the Baptist. We've already talked about the pre-cross ministry of Jesus and the apostles. The new thing that he says here is the, the sacrifice has been made and all things stand ready. So this looks to after the cross and the resurrection. This send, looks to the sending of the apostles to Israel uh, with yet another offer of the kingdom after the resurrection. You can, you can see that in Acts chapter 3. And I encourage you to turn there, Acts chapter 3, and we'll start with verse 12. So they healed this man at the temple, and Peter, everybody's wondering at, the, at it, and Peter sees this, and he says to the people, men of Israel, now that's important to note, he's addressing the men of Israel, men of Israel, why do you marvel at this and look at us as if we did this? Verse 13, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, has glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and put to death the author of life, whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we're all witnesses. And then he says, it's through Jesus this man was healed. And he says uh, in verse 18, the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that the times of refreshing may, be, may come from the presence of the Lord 
and that he may send Jesus the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient times. So even then, they're reaching out. And that's what this points to. The, the outreach after the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So amazing, amazing grace to make another offer after their outrageous response. And what is their response now to this third call? Verses 5 and 6, it is rejection and violence. But they were uninterested and departed, one to his own field, another to his business, and the rest seized his slaves and abused and killed them. The most urgent message they'd ever heard, and they just weren't interested. Isn't that an amazing thing to read? They had been not willing, and now they're just not even interested. The word means they they were unconcerned. It just didn't matter to them. It wasn't it wasn't even as interesting as hearing that salmon were running or something like that. That had some practical value. This had no interest to them, no appeal whatsoever. No appeal. Offer of a kingly banquet to people who had already responded disgracefully to the king, and yet still he would accept them. No interest. That that is astonishing. So, what would they say in their disinterest? The stress here is the king doesn't say this. He sends his slaves to say this. Did you notice this? So, the slaves are going with the message of the king. So, did the people say, well, you know, this is not such a big deal. These are just slaves telling this. I mean, they're nobodies. They're absolute nobodies who are bringing this message. And, well, that's true. They are in themselves absolute nobodies. But they're the king's nobodies. And they're bringing the king's word. And that makes the word of great interest to them. Because their indifference to the word of these slaves is indifference to whom? To the king. And so, friends, I just hasten to point out to you, what, what, what is evangelism? Evangelism is just nobody's telling the message of the only somebody that there is. I was saved by a nobody telling me the gospel. And everyone who's heard the gospel from me has heard it from a nobody. The point isn't the person telling. The point's the message and the person who sends the message. And as this was the message of the king, the gospel is the message of the king. And, and we who bring the gospel should remember that ourselves. We are slaves of the king. We better get his message right. And I don't think it's best to talk about sharing the gospel. You don't share the word of a king. You, you tell it. You proclaim it. The gospel is, after all, not just an offer. It's news about something that Jesus actually accomplished, accompanied with a command to respond. 1 John 3.23. It's God's command that people believe in the Lord Jesus. 1 John 3.23. So when people don't care when they hear the gospel, it's God they're insulting not the nobody who's telling them the gospel. That is granted. Gospel is always brought by nobodies, but it's the word of the only somebody that there is, of the Lord God. So they were people who didn't care, and they went off to their field, their business, maybe agricultural, maybe in the city, whatever it was. <clears throat> These were not evil activities. Isn't that interesting? That they didn't go off a-whoring and getting drunk. They went to work. What's evil about that? Well, what's evil about that is what it is instead of. 
They're doing that instead of responding to the word of the king. That's the whole point. Uh, a commenter named um, Bruner says, legitimate occupations become sinister when they are preoccupations. And that's just what this is, or even put better by Thomas Manson, the Puritan. He said, excusing is refusing. And that's exactly what's going on here. They've got time for family. They've got time for recreation. They've got time for business, not time for the king. As today, people have time for games, video games, pursuits, sports, everything in the world, but not the gospel, not the Lord God, not his son. So that's what some do. Others abuse and murder, treat outrageously. That word abuse means, we, we know the word hubris. This is a, a verb related to that noun. They, they treated them with arrogant cruelty and outrageousness. <clears throat> and so we see that in the New Testament, don't we? There's, there's no deaths in the Gospels, but this is the period of the Acts and beyond. And we indeed see Stephen being murdered by the people of Israel for his pains in telling them about Jesus and uh, preaching the word of God to them. And Paul did this. He says himself in Acts 22.4, I persecuted this way to the death. Acts 22.4, that was his testimony. Acts 26.10, he says that uh, when Christians were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. So not just Stephen, but other, other Christians were put, together, put to death by the Jewish authorities during this time. That was their response to the king's messengers. So what is the king's reaction in verse 7? Well, it's death and destruction. They've, they've run out the clock. That's their last call. So the king became wrathful and sent his, this is wrath, orgizo, the, the word orge, the noun orge, the wrath of God that is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. Well, he was wroth. He was moved with wrath sent his armies, destroyed those murderers, and set their city ablaze. Perfectly, out, perfectly appropriate for such an outrageous response. And what's the fulfillment of this in history? Well, it would come a few decades later in 70 AD, after decades of rejecting the gospel message, even after the resurrection of Christ, the Romans, Titus Vespasian, came in 70 AD, and they set the city ablaze, just like Jesus said here decades before it happened killed a million, a hundred thousand Jews, Josephus says, and this in response to their, to their sin. It's appropriate. But notice an interesting thing. The king sent his armies. What does that tell us about the Romans? They were God's armies. God used them as he had it throughout the Old Testament. With Gentile nations, he used them to judge his rebellious, unrepentant people. So that's the first sequence with its five movements, and now we have the second sequence, which mirrors it. Again, I say that's very important. Verses 8 through 12. And so it begins, just like the first did, with the action of the king. And he issues his fourth call. So we will see the status and the sending. In verse 8, we have the status. Verse 8, Then he says to his slaves, On the one hand, the wedding is ready. But on the other, those who've been called were not worthy. Now, that's going to be very important in a few minutes. So this is the summary of the first sequence. What's the first sequence? It ends up with all of those called not worthy. They were not worthy. So 
they were not worthy, he says. And what does it mean to say that they were not worthy? Does it mean that they were in themselves obviously immoral, bad people? Well, I mean, some of them were just going to business and so forth. It wasn't what you'd look at and say that's outrageous behavior. What, what's, what specifically is the lack of worthiness? I say this is important. The specific lack of worthiness is when they were called, they didn't come. And they're called by the king to come honor his son. They didn't come. Oh, you say what? I think I'm seeing through this. That's great. That's just what I want you to do. But, but when they were called by the king to come honor his son, they wouldn't do it. That's what being not worthy is. They wouldn't come when they were called. It wasn't, they were all immoral. Of course they were. All men are. But the specific point of their not worthiness is when they were called to come honor the Son. They didn't do it. They didn't have any interest in coming and participating and honoring the Son to the pleasure of the King. They would not come to His call. That's the status. And so then we see the sending in verse 9. Therefore, go to the outlets of the roads, and as many folks as you find, call unto the wedding festivities. What are the outlets of the roads? The Greek phrase suggests that this is the point at which the roads go through and out of the city. In other words, these are, these are the exit points of the city. In other words, it's the fringe. It's, it's as out there as you get. It's the edge of the city. These people are, the messengers are being sent to fringe people now. The most disconnected. The most far off people. Not the central people, but the people who are on the edges. The, the nobodies on the edges. So what does this correspond to in the progress of the kingdom? Well, remember the flow. We saw the first was about the whole scope of the Old Testament. And then we had the ministry of John the Baptist and the apostles during the earthly ministry of Christ. Then we had the post-resurrection ministry of the apostles. And what does this bring us to when we talk about them being sent to the fringes? Today. In short, today. Today. The ministry to Gentiles and Jews. To the Jew first, yes, but also to the Gentile. This, this is talking about today, the kingdom progress today, where messengers are being sent out to the poorest, most disconnected nobodies who are on the fringe. Uh, and that is, by the way, where the gospel ends, isn't it? All power, all authority has been given to me in heaven on earth, Jesus says, therefore go make disciples of all the nations go to the outlets and bring this message to them. So what is the response? Well, this time we've got to change. <laughs> the response in this case is acceptance. Verse 10, And those slaves went out into the roads and gathered together all they found, both bad and good, which I, I take to mean people who looked okay and people who looked sketchy. Pe people who, you know, were decent enough at a glance, and people who looked like they were not all that decent. They were not the sorts that you might want at a king's party. Uh, the, the word bad is used of, of bad fruit coming from a tree, you know, not necessarily immoral, just not good, <laughs> not something you'd want to eat. And so these are not the sort of people you might want at a party, but, you know, the king was explicit, go get everybody, anybody. So they went out and they got everybody and anybody that would come. And as a result, the wedding hall was filled with diners. Uh, literally those reclining, because that's how they ate in those days. They'd, it sounds real awkward to me, but they'd lean on their elbow and they'd eat at, the, at a low table. That was, so these are reclining. These are, these are the diners. 
So, um, you know, this is similar, by the way, do you remember to the, the first parable where Jesus slaps the Pharisees and the, the um, chief priests by saying, well, John the Baptist came, you wouldn't respond, but the traitors and the trollops did. The prostitutes and the tax collectors, they went in. The people you think are just <laughs> beyond the pale. And so Jesus here, except the difference is, the people who were beyond the pale in that parable would be envisioned as Jewish people. These people are, well, rough, dogs, <laughs> like you and me. They're, they're beyond nobody. They're less than nobody. I've told you in the past that uh, when, at least when Rabbi said that, why did God create Gentiles? Well, you've got to have something to burn to make hell hot. Yeah, yeah, wow, indeed. So, so, and these are the people who do come to the party. So you see the, the effect of him saying that. So, what's the king's reaction? The king's reaction is entrance and a question. Verses 11 and 12a. And when the king entered to observe the diners, so he's looking to see who is it who actually came finally to my banquet, he saw there a man not clothed with clothing for a wedding. Now that literal translation is important. Not clothed with clothing for a wedding. And he says to him, pow, this word pow, it's been used before by Jesus. It, it's a friendly thing you say to someone whose name you don't know. And it's like buddy or bubba or whatever. But uh, bro, <laughs> but, but uh, bro wouldn't work. Um, pow, he says, pow, how did you get in here, though not having clothing for a wedding? So there's the difficult thing. What is that about? What is this whole thing about a wedding garment? What, what is that? I mean, what's that about? What, what does he mean by a wedding garment and, and not having one? I mean, how could he have? They'd all been kind of pressed to come in. And what's the big deal? Why didn't he have one? Why was it a big deal he didn't have one? What does it even mean? Well, these are the things I want to try to answer for you, and this is very, very challenging, but I think that the parable actually makes it pretty clear. So, first of all, let's, let's figure out what the right question is. What is the right question to ask if we're going to interpret this? Most people ask the question, what do the wedding garments mean? What's the meaning of the wedding garment? Well, literally, it just would mean, you know, what we call business casual. It just, it just would mean clean clothes. Nothing special, you know, no, no bangles or sparkles or crocodile teeth or rattlesnake uh, rattles or anything like that. Just clean clothes. That, that's all it was, just clean clothes. Not something to be assumed in that day, when there being no laundromats around and whatnot, but no Walmarts. But, uh, but just clean clothes to, to show respect. And note that if you say, well, you know, how, how could he even find them because uh, they'd just been pressed to come in, well, notice everybody else did. Now, that's an interesting thing just to note right there. The first sequence, it's a mass of people who are not worthy. The second sequence singles out one guy. So judgment is granular. Don't, don't think that God's going to judge you on a curb. You're better than most other Americans. That is a low bar these days, but that's not the bar. Each is judged individually. And this man is judged individually. We don't know whether or not Jesus envisions anyone else not having wedding clothes. It doesn't matter. The point is he doesn't have wedding clothes. And so um, 
Everyone else does, but he didn't manage to do it. So what is the focus? Is the focus the question that a lot of people ask, what is the meaning of the wedding clothes? Not really. The focus should be, and the right question is, what does it mean not to have wedding clothes? Bless you. Because that's the problem. The problem is he doesn't have wedding clothes. So that's the focus. That's the question to ask. What does it mean not to have wedding clothes? What does his lack of wedding clothes mean? And that really points us towards the answers we'll see in just a minute. But first, let's look at the wrong answers <laughs> and clear them away because you've probably heard most or all of them. Uh, now, one thing you've probably heard because a lot of people preach this is, well, kings in those days at wedding festivals, they offered garments to everybody. So that means the king had offered him garments and he refused to receive the garments from the king. That's a, a lovely thought, and it's very preachable and very understandable. It's just got one problem. There's no evidence that ever happened. It's, it's just made up. It's, it's, a spec, it's like that I told you long ago about the, the camel gate, you know, that the cam, you have to get on your knees to get through the... And it never existed. No, no evidence. Lovely thought. Never happened. <laughs> and so this too, that's a lovely thought, but there's, there's no evidence that kings ever did that. So that's not going to be our answer there. Uh, a better answer is people say, well, it speaks of the imputed righteousness of Christ. Uh, not altogether impossible, but the trouble is Jesus doesn't really talk about that in the Gospel of Matthew. Something Paul talks about a lot. You can find a few verses in the Old Testament that look like that. But it's not a point uh, that Jesus made much. And as we will see, there's something that lies much closer to hand than, than that. Now, that's a good application, I'm going to say. That's a good application, but we're talking about what is the interpretation. What did Jesus mean when he talked about this guy not having uh, wedding garments? And so other people say, oh, well, they're good works. Good people, they say good works or their holiness. They're practicing your faith. They're proof of your salvation. They're baptism. These are all answers that have been given, and I think that those are all wrong answers. I think there's a better answer. So let's talk about what <laughs> I modestly call the right answer. <laughs> well, I'm not going to preach to you what I think is the wrong answer, am I? So this is what I'm going to suggest is the right answer, and I'll explain to you why I think it's the right answer. Now I'm going to go back and, and pay off noticing the symmetry of this parable. Do you remember I told you that it was two identical sequences with five parts each? And what was wrong with everybody in the... What did the king say about everyone in the first sequence? Remember? They were not worthy. They were not worthy. And then we come to the end of the second sequence and there's one person who is not worthy. But the way he shows that he's not worthy is he's not wearing a wedding garment. So, what did it mean for the people in the first sequence to be not worthy? Very simple. When the king called them to honor his son, they wouldn't come. So what does it mean not to have a wedding garment? Called to honor the son, you don't come to do that. Because the point is in the words. He didn't have a wedding garment. He didn't dress in such a way that said, I'm here to honor the son and celebrate his wedding. He came in such a way that said, what I've got is good enough. I just dress in what, what com what's comfortable to me and what suits me. This is not anything special. So why did he come? Well, I mean, you, you just have to guess. 
Did he come for the fatted calf? Did he come for the meat? Did he come for the, the wine, for the, the dances, the singing? Did he come for all that? Well, you know, it's possible. We could speculate, yeah, maybe so. But we, we know one thing for sure. What didn't he come for? To honor the son, to honor the king's son. Well, how do we know that? Didn't wear a wedding garment. You see? So that's really what it means to, to come and not have a wedding garment. That though maybe you've responded outwardly, maybe if I can be an anachronistic, since there is no church at this time, but you join the church, maybe you even get baptized and do all this stuff, but you're not really there for Christ. You, you don't know the Lord. You, haven't, you don't come to church to honor Christ or because God the Father has called you. There's, there's some other reason to it. So, uh, called to come honor the, the king's son, he doesn't come to honor the king's son. And then, now you see that when you go back and you look at the uses of worthy in the Gospel of Matthew. I take you back to John the Baptist's first preaching in, in Matthew chapter 3. Repent for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand. And he calls them to repent, to turn from what they were. So what they're wearing is not good enough. Do you see the parallel? Where they are is not good enough. They've got to turn around. Why? Because the wedding is going to happen. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And what does he say in verse 8? Bear fruit worthy of repentance. Now the LSB says in keeping with, but it's the same word here in chapter 22 translated worthy. Bear fruit worthy of repentance. So there, repent, fruit worthy of repentance is the wedding garment. It says you've repented because of the kingdom of heaven's call. Uh, and Jesus preached that same message. Look at chapter 10. Now you can note it down or, or look, but I'm going to read to you. Chapter 10, remember, they're all sent out to, to call people to repent because the kingdom is at hand. The 12 apostles are. And when they enter a village, he says in verse 11, inquire who is worthy in it and stay until you leave. What does it mean who is worthy? Somebody who is morally good or doing good works? Not in the context. They're asking who there is accepting the message. Who is listening to the kingdom call? And so you stay there. If the house is worthy, let your peace rest on it. If it's not worthy, let your peace... You know, it's not all about their morality or their religiosity. It's about do they accept the message, the call to the kingdom. And so he says, verse 14, Whoever does not receive you or heed your words, when you leave, shake off the dust, and it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for that town. So again, the worthiness, the whole thing about worthiness is when the Father calls to the banquet, do they come? And so the same thing here. What does it mean for him to lack his garment? In coming, he showed he wasn't there for the king or for his son. Whatever he was there for, it wasn't the wedding. It wasn't the king or his son. Not, he was not worthy because he hadn't come to honor the king's son. So he's the person today who does not heed the call to come to God through Christ. Uh, so the king says, how did you get in here not having a wedding garment? This is a wedding, and you've come not dressed for a wedding. And so he asks him this, and the response is silence in verse 12b. The man was speechless. Now see, here would be the place for the guy to say, I am so sorry, I just didn't have time, I was too rushed. Or if, if that you know, common myth was true, that would be the place for him to say, well, you didn't offer me a garment, uh, which never happened. But I mean, this would be the place to say that, or I didn't have anything to wear. But he's actually got nothing. 
He's got nothing. He knew he was being called for a wedding, and he just didn't think, he didn't get ready for it, and he didn't come for a wedding. So, I, I, I just want to say, I'm going to sneak this in, we'll return to this, but if, if you've heard of Christ, and you've not responded, this is you. This is a little peek at your future. When God asks you, how do you imagine you're getting into the kingdom of heaven, not having trusted in Christ, you'll have nothing to say. Remember a fellow I talked to decades ago, and he said, he's not a believer, and he said, I know, you know, when the judgment happens, I'm going to have to do some mighty fast talking. And I said, friend, you're not going to get a word out of your mouth before you hear the sentence. There's not a word going to come out of your mouth. And so this man is speechless. So the king's reaction then is punishment, binding and casting out. Then the king said to the servants, bind his feet and hands and cast him out into the outer darkness. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now we're, we're going to open that up in just a few minutes, but just notice briefly, uh, he didn't come for the party and he didn't stay in the party. He got cast out into outer darkness and hands and feet tied. Why? Well, for one reason, so he wouldn't try to sneak back in again. That's not going to happen. But we'll talk about this more in a moment, Lord willing. Finally, letter D, we have the commentary that Jesus gives. For many are called, but few are chosen. I mean that, to open that up too in a few minutes. But the, the simple meaning is obvious. Many are called. The servants were sent out. They were sent out again. They were sent out again. Many were called but few were chosen. Now, now, this does not mean numerically, like, just to make it real simple, it doesn't necessarily mean 48,000 were called, but only nine came. What it means is 49,000 were called, and fewer than 49,000 came. You see? Few just means less than those who were called. So the call, the call goes out far and wide, but those who are chosen, who Jesus says are chosen, that's fewer than those who hear the call. It's a subset of those who hear the call. So, are they only give me 19 people in heaven? This is not the verse that teaches that. No verse teaches that. But there will be fewer than heard the gospel. You see? Yes. Thank you. You know how this works. Roman numeral 10, though, now that you understand everything about the parable, let's draw some lessons from the parable. Roman numeral 2, the lessons of the parable. And I'm just going to single out four. First of all, you just have to marvel at God's patient persistence. God's patient persistence. What do you mean? I mean the title of the sermon. What did God do? Called and called and called and called. That is patient persistence. That's his name. That's, like we say today, that's my middle name. That's God's middle name. I mean that literally. Do you remember Moses asked God to reveal himself to him, and God preaches a sermon on his name in Exodus chapter 34. In Exodus chapter 34, 6, he opens by saying, Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. Yes, indeed, he calls and calls and calls. And we see through the scope of the Old Testament how God did that on a large scale. Adam and Eve sinned, and what did God immediately do? Yes, 
He punished them with death, but he also promised Christ. Right away, Genesis 3.15. What about then the world? Sin works its way through the entire human uh, population because all sinned in Adam. And so Genesis 6, sin, corruption, violence, the whole human family. What happened then? God chose this one. He elected this one family. He elected Noah who found grace in his sight. And for 120 years, Noah preached to those fallen people. I get that by putting together 1 Peter 3.20 and 2 Peter 2.5. 1 Peter 3.20 says of those people who were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. 1 Peter 3.20. And what was happening during that, that waiting of 120 years? 2 Peter 2.5. God did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness. 120 years Noah preached, but nobody came. Just his family. And then you've got the, the whole Old Testament. We looked at some of that just in recent weeks. I'll, I'll just point to 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16. 2 Chronicles 36, 15 and 16, when finally their judgment is about to fall, we read, And Yahweh, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by the hand of his messengers, because he had compassion on his people and on his habitation. But... They continually mocked the messengers of God, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh arose against his people until there was no remedy. Boy, that just sounds like another version of this parable, or part of it, doesn't it? Called and called and called, and they were not interested, and they didn't want it, and they abused the messengers. But... Can't we say that this is also true in our individual lives as well? I mean, we could talk about our country, but let's be more individual. Let me ask you a question answer in the silence of your own heart. How many times have you heard the gospel? And I especially want to ask you who have not yet truly trusted in Christ. You may be religious, you may be not. You may be a churchgoer, you may be not. I don't know your heart, God does. But you've heard the gospel how many times? Well, I'll tell you what. If you heard the gospel one time, that was sheer grace. God didn't owe you anything but wrath and judgment and hell. And I'll say absolutely the same for me. I'd heard the gospel long before I was converted, and he didn't owe me that one time. But how many times have you heard it? Well, I can say for absolute certain you've heard it at least once, because you're hearing it now. You're hearing God call you now. One time is sheer mercy, but two times, three times, luxury, <laughs> luxury, outrageous to continue breathing God's air, drinking God's water, eating God's food, walking on God's planet while living in rebellion and hatred against God and hearing a call to redemption again and again and again, though ignoring it every time. Amazing, <laughs> unbelievable just like this parable, God is patiently persistent, amazing long-suffering. Secondly, man's perversity. Letter B, man's perversity. So, they're being called to a royal party, and they won't come. 
Now, you might understand it, I guess, if they were being called to um, roll around in snails and, and pour cow urine on themselves. Okay, I, I can understand not being excited about that and not wanting to come. But, you know, I, I say that and you chuckle, as I hoped you might, <laughs> but, but for the way people respond to the gospel, you'd think that was the gospel. That the gospel is give up everything that's good and wonderful in life, everything that could ever make anyone smile or happy, every pleasant thing, every happy thing, give all that up and come to a, an eternity of relentless dark misery. Who wants to come? Is that the gospel? That's the gospel. The gospel is leave guilt and fear and dread and certainty of the judgment of God. Leave a meaningless life of delusion, a hopeless dead-end uh, um, project of setting up an alternate creation where I'm God. Leave that. That will never work. That, that is certain to, sure, to, to assure for you eternal regret and anger and, and misery. Leave that. Come to the banquet. Come to Christ where your sins will be forgiven, where God will give you his own righteousness, where God will adopt you as a child and embrace you in his love and never let you go. And the promise that through this life, whatever sufferings it has, and it will have sufferings, you will have the assurance that all those sufferings are temporary and you are headed towards an eternity of banqueting, an eternity of light and joy and rejoicing in the presence of God and in celebration of his son. That's what the gospel is. For people's reaction, you'd think it was the first thing, but that's the reality. As you see here, what possible excuse do they have for unwillingness? And yet they all are. And in fact, at root, they have violent hatred. We'll see more clearly in just a moment. They had nothing better to do than go to that banquet, right? We've got nothing better to do than come to Christ. That's the gospel call. We've got... I mean, that is the, perhaps the greatest understatement I've ever made. But we've got nothing better to do than come to Christ. There you see man's perversity. Offered everything he'd rather have, delusional nothing. Thirdly, four truths about God's judgment. In this verse, verse 13, Then the king said to the servants, Bind his hands Bind his feet and hands and cast him out into the outer darkness. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. First truth is it is irresistible. It is irresistible. There will be no escaping it. Who said to do this? Real question. Who said to do this? The king. It's not a hard question. I know it sounds it's so simple. That can't be the real question. That was a real question. Who said to do this? The king said to do this. So what are you going to do? <laughs> You're gonna, it, he's he's going to have that done. You're going to be tied up and thrown out. And so Hollywood has conditioned us to think that there's always going to be a happy ending, or there always can be. Even if, if our hero is dead, well, he won't be next week, you know, uh, next, next episode of the show. He only seems dead, you know. Or, or no matter how guilty or someone is, no matter how great the power he's offended, we're just going to find some way around it. This is not that. This is the death of every such fable. In this case, well, let me ask you, where would you flee? All we have is creation, and he's the creator. 
So there is no escaping this. When God's judgment falls, it will fall on you if you're on the wrong side of this. If I'm outside of Christ, God's judgment will find me. It will find me out. There's no world I can flee to. There's no alternate universe or multiverse. It's all his creation. He will find me. He will judge me. I will be tied up and cast out. It is irresistible. Secondly, it is, ines- it is inescapable. Inescapable. Bind his hands and feet, it says. Now, try to think about this. Try to imagine what this is like. All liberty and choice gone forever. Now again, if you're not a Christian, you're hearing me, you're being faced with a call to decision, to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Once you've breathed your last and this judgment happens, no liberty or choice ever again. Just judgment. There's no decisions to make. You've made them all. You ran out the clock. Congratulations. Now you have eternity to live with your refusal to accept God's gracious honor, offer. Bind his hands and his feet. Yes, in the first place so that he can't try to sneak out back into the party, sure, but he can't go anywhere. He can't do anything for himself. He's absolutely tied up. There's not going to be any second chance. This is a myth some people have, have made and convinced themselves of. Well, there's a second chance after death will be offered a second chance. No, no. There will be no second chance. When the judgment of God falls, hands and feet are bound. There won't be another offer. The offer you're hearing the offer. This is it. There will be no second offer after, after death, after God's judgment falls. It is inescapable. Thirdly, it is isolating. Where is he cast? Into the outer darkness. So what's he being cast out of? A banquet. What's in the banquet? Light and fellowship and joy and singing and dancing and lavish food, happiness, songs of praise, people loving each other and enjoying each other. That's the banquet. The judge person is cast out of all that. He will never know any of that ever again. He's seen his last glimmer of light He's heard his last kind word. He's had his last pleasant feeling. He's run out the clock. He's refused God's gracious call. And now he'll be paying the price forever. He will be in the outer darkness. Now, like I said just a moment ago, um, the gospel is the call to light and life. You refuse the gospel, you're refusing light and life. That's what you're refusing. That is the only way. Do you think people are going to get better in hell? Well, they're not. And life is not going to be better. I said a moment ago, you trust Christ and you will have suffering, but you'll know that all your suffering is temporary. Well, I say to you this solemnly, if you've not trusted in Christ, you're knowing great pleasures by God's kindness, but they're all temporary. You don't trust in Christ, the moment will come when you've seen your last pleasure and your last happy moment forever. So you see, cast into the outer darkness. Also, it is revealing. Fourth and finally, it is revealing. There, there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now what's that about? There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 
Well, the wailing is obviously grief and horror and sadness. And the gnashing of teeth is, it could be pain. More often it's anger. It's fury. So do you think people are going to get better in hell? Maybe they'll improve and improve and eventually find their way back into heaven. Well, the truth is in this life, for a person outside of Christ, every humble thought, every twinge of conscience, every um, sane moment, these are all gifts of God's common grace that he gives to all his creatures. And all of them are temporary gifts and all of them will be withdrawn when his judgment falls. So there's been, now you see the real person. And the real person is not, uh, gee, I wish I'd repented because God is so good. The real person is revealed in eternal raging against God. Eternal grief because his attempt to kill God failed. Eternal wailing and lamenting because he didn't get to kill God and replace him. The real person now comes out forever and is revealed as common grace is withdrawn from that person. And so imagine that, an eternity of being consumed with impotent rage that you weren't able to wipe out the object of your hatred. And that's what we have here wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's what God's judgment reveals. Finally, letter D, God's rule in Jesus' comment in verse 14, for many are called, but few are chosen. Now, this shows us our responsibility in God's gift. Many are called. Well, that's, that's our part. We're charged by God to take this invitation out. That's our part. Our part is to call many, to extend this call to any and every, to go out to the outlets, the absolute fringe ways, knowing that as we give this call, every person we call responds. Even if they say, well, I'm just not interested. Well, that's their response. Ignoring is refusing. And so we're called to call, but then Jesus says, few are chosen. Now, this is just a funny thing, how many times I've seen commenters on this and heard preachers talk about this. And so when they get to explain, many are called, but few are chosen, what that means is many, many call, but few respond to the call. Few, few choose Christ. Few accept this gospel. Few because it's our responsibility to repent and to trust Christ. And of the, those who are called, very few respond. Very few believe. Very few choose Christ. Well, you know, all of that's true. Wouldn't it have been nice if Jesus had said that? Did he say that? He didn't say any of that here. What did he say here? Many, but few are chosen. Now, chosen is a passive formed adjective. It doesn't mean very few make the choice. It means very few are the objects of God's choosing. Many few, uh, few are chosen by God. So Jesus didn't say many are called, but few choose. He didn't say many are called, but few believe. He didn't say many are called, but few accept. Uh, all of which is true. It's just he didn't say that. What he said was many are called, but few are chosen. No, he did talk about election a fair bit. We could spend a good deal of time on that. He talked about that a lot. And his position was the, the position of the whole Bible. He was a monergist. God sovereignly chooses who God will save. 
and sends his son to save those people he chose. And the rest are left to their sin. So Mark 13.20, he uses the word. Mark 13.20, speaking of the tribulation, unless the Lord had shortened those days, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Isn't that nice? He defines this word for us. So we shouldn't go wrong unless some perverse idea forces us to because we don't want to accept what he said. But what is the definition of chosen? Who he chose. Right there. For the sake of the elect whom he chose. The elect are people who the Lord chose. That's what that means. So what, do we, what does he mean here? Plug that in here. For many are called, but few are those whom the Lord chose. Now that's what Jesus means. How do I know that? Because that's what Jesus said. So uh, Jesus speaks on that. Well, he spoke it in the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 11. And this is just that. This is just what he said there. Matthew chapter 11, we'll sing out verses 25 through 27. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you. And then this is after the, the mission of the 12, going out and preaching to many and, and only being accepted by some. And so Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you've hidden these things from the wise and intelligent. In other words, that many are called, but not all respond because God has hidden them from the wise and intelligent and have revealed them to infants. Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. That's the sovereign, electing, approving will of God. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, anyone, and anyone who chooses to know the Son. Is that what Jesus says? Did you open your Bibles? He says, anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. The initiative is with Jesus. Many are called, but fewer than that many are chosen. Chosen by whom? Chosen by the Lord. And still he calls, come to me. But those who come are those who were chosen by God. And he says that in many verses. We've seen many times. John six thirty seven. All the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will never cast out. Like the man without the wedding garment is cast out. I will never cast out the one who comes to me. And who will come to me? The one who chooses to? Yes, indeed. But why does he choose? Jesus says, because the Father gave him to me. He chooses to come to me because the Father gave him to me. And he says the flip side in verse 44, John 6, 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, the few who are chosen are given Jesus by the Father, and the rest don't have, they really don't want to come. They don't want to, like we just read, they don't want to, they don't care, they hate the messengers, they hate the king. So they don't come. John 17, 2, Jesus prays. He says, you gave the Son authority over all flesh, many, that to all whom you've given him, few, he may give eternal life. Verse 6, I've manifested your name to the men whom you gave me out of the world. Out of the many, you gave me the few, fewer. And I manifested your name. They were yours, and you gave them to me, and they've kept your word. So why is he saying this? It's kind of an abrupt thing to say, it seems like. But it isn't, I think, when you think about it. So somebody hearing this parable might think, wow, but so you're saying that the kingdom of 
of God, this whole program is just off the rails. It's out of control. God just, you know, he wished so many would come, but, but they just don't. And God's so disappointed because he really hoped for better. No, Jesus is saying, no, actually, this is all right on schedule. This is exactly God's will, that many be called because few are chosen. Few will come because few are chosen. The general call goes out to the many. God has his elect, whom he chose before the creation of the world. They will hear, they will come, and they will give all glory to God. Those who hear and don't come will bear all the responsibility for their refusal because they did what they wanted and they didn't want to come. Many are called, few are chosen. So I say, wrapping this up, and look, you're getting out well before the evening service. <laughs> I say in closing, well, I'm not done yet, though, am I? It could be a long closing, so don't get too comfortable. But I, I do want to say in closing how gracious of God to call and call and call and call. In my life, how gracious of God to have called me and called me and called me. And you've heard him call yet again. So for you and me in this gospel age, what it means to come to Christ is the, the, the Father calls us to his Son. And when we come to his Son, indeed we are clothed with his righteousness. Indeed, we are forgiven all our sins. And indeed, his righteousness is imputed to us. And indeed, we have a certainty of eternity with him and his kingdom. And we have it all because God prepared the banquet and because Christ made the sacrifice that redeems us, that is the propitiation for our sins. Not maybe, not tries to be, but actually propitiates for our sins so that we might be drawn to him in saving faith and might etern eternally enjoy his kingdom. So I just say in closing, if you've not come to Christ, come. All things are ready. Let us pray. Father, thank you for this word of yours, and thank you for oh, the many truths that it teaches that we never would have figured out for ourselves, never would have found our way to. Thank you for your grace in calling and calling. I thank you for every person here that you graciously spared them to hear yet another call. And we who rejoice in Christ, thank you for the grace that brought us to hear and to come, to come to the Son and to be members and guests at that party and have that hope of eternal banqueting in the presence of Christ. And for those who've come not knowing Christ, oh Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit will wake them up and open their eyes and lead them see their peril and their need for fleeing to Christ, not assuming they'll hear another call, but coming at this call. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.